Well, if you were following along with us before we COVID-19 changed all of our lives, we are going through 1 Timothy. We are in chapter 2, and we are at verse 8. And um, in this, we were um, um, going to be headed into this section, but I just, for the last few weeks, of course, we had Easter, and it just didn't seem like with all that was going on, this was the right time to go into the study. Um, but we are going to uh, resume our study in 1 Timothy now, chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And the title is Men and Women in the Church. This isn't going to be the complete statement of men and women in the church and what they should be doing, but it certainly is an aspect of it. So we'll be, we'll be there. Let's go ahead and read um, this section together. So 1 Timothy, chapter 2, and let's begin reading at verse 8. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Some of your translations say dissension. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but with that which is proper for women, professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So, yeah, this, the, these short verses create... Uh, many questions, and I hope to um, work our way through them. And um, we are, um, at the end of our study, we, we are not going to have a, a Q&A today. However, I would like to ask that you would still um, submit your questions as we go through this um, service today. And then through this week, we will um, address these and we'll send out some videos and be able to answer them in that way. So um, Q&A, but just a slightly different format today. Um, gosh, announcements. Next Sunday, we're going to have another drive-in service here at 945. So, um, and then we'll have a, uh, a live stream, um, recorded live stream at 1130. So next, 40, next Sunday, 945 a.m., weather permitting. So if, it, if it's sprinkling or raining, we can't do that. So anyway, here we are looking at verse 8 where it talks about men at church. And it says, Paul declares that he wants to see men praying everywhere. Men should engage at church. This is a, a probably a, you know uh, a most uh, general statement that we can draw from this verse, is that men are to be spiritually engaged in the life and ministry of the Church of Jesus Christ. The Paul Paul desires that men would pray, and that this would be something that they do um, with consistency, lifting up holy hands, but prayer. We can do it everywhere, and Paul wants people, men, to be engaged in prayer meetings everywhere. Wherever the church gathers, the prayer should be happening. And um, I'm glad to say that there is a, a vibrant prayer ministry for the men um, at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. Um, but, I, but prayer can continue to, to grow and to find um, other places to work itself into our lives. But prayer typically... 
Um, and I really don't know that that's the case at, at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg, but I think typically prayer is something that usually is dominated by, by women. And they're the ones that come out and make that priority. Um, you know, I think some of it might just have to do with, you know, getting a guy to sit down and be still for a minute is a tough thing to do. But that is no excuse. We have been called to pray and to, to slow down. And if you are that man who says, well, I just can't sit still for that long. Well, Jesus said to the disciples, can you not pray for just one hour? So it is an expectation that we would pray. It's a discipline you can learn and you can grow in. And, and prayer is just com- simply communicating with the Lord. And so make this a priority. But, you know, overall, the men of the church should be engaged in the life of the church. Um, there are opportunities um, all over um, in children's ministry for the men to be present. Um, and I'm not saying this to the exclusion of the women because we have a lot of women teaching. But on this point, talking to men, get involved in teaching the next generation of the church. You can love Jesus and you can love the church, but we must invest in teaching the, the younger people. And they should have those that are the you know, that know the most, that are the, the, the best gifted to engage and teach them. So um, as we come to back into uh, regular attendance, I just want to challenge everyone, men and women, to engage in teaching the children, the, the kids that we have. Um, we're told to earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to us. I can think of no better way to contend for the faith then make certain that the Word of God is faithfully and lovingly and um, uh, joyfully passed on to the next uh, generation of kids um, that are coming up through the church, and they will be the leaders. So I, I just want to give that exhortation to, for the men to engage. And maybe uh, some of you men have, um, got, have had more time to ponder and think through this. And um, as we come back, we need to be ready to just go full steam ahead. The, the next point that we see here is that they should be lifting up holy hands. And the, the idea here is simply that when we engage in a spiritual activity, there should not be a distance between um, our heart and um, our, our activity. So we should be lifting up hands, a sign that... Um, is often associated with prayer, just reaching out to the Lord and asking Him to, to move. But those hands that are being lifted up, they should be holy hands. There shouldn't be a, a, a disparity between the way we're living our life and the spiritual activities that we are engaging in. It's the idea of being in submission and receiving help and celebrating the, the greatness of God as we raise our hands. But is that from our heart? Is this something that's consistent? And um, this is the exhortation that Paul gives to men, is not allowing hypocrisy to be um, in there. And, of course, this was a church that was dealing with some of that. They had some people that were false teachers, some men in the church that were um, sending mixed messages. They had bad teaching, and yet they were all around claiming to be spiritual. In Isaiah 1.15, it says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. So here's a, an occasion in the life of Israel's history when the hands were being lifted up, but their hands were shedding the blood of the innocent. 
And the Lord's like, I'm not going to even look at this. So the Lord does not engage in the prayer life of those who are um, walking in sin. An exhortation, a specific exhortation is given to men that they um, uh, see that they you know, love their wives and treat their wives well, lest their prayers be hindered. Again, you, you're praying, but you're not loving your wife. Well, the Lord says, your prayers are going to be hindered. So there is a strong correlation between living a holy life and engaging in spiritual activity. This was a great sin of the Pharisees, right? That Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They looked great on the outside, all cleaned up. But what's on the inside of a tomb? It doesn't matter how well you dress up a tomb. On the inside, there is rotting, decaying flesh and decomposing body. And he says, this is what you Pharisees are like. You look good on the outside, but you are dead on the inside. And Paul is simply saying, men, let there be a consistency in your life. And the other point that he makes there in verse 8 is that there should be a consistency um, in the way we are dealing with other people. So if you look at verse 8, what he says is that we should, uh, should not have wrath or doubting. So this probably goes back to the way we should, you know, specific idea of holiness. Maybe, again, he's thinking of the false teachers that were um, angry men. They were kind of uh, running roughshod over the body of Christ. And they were there with their hands lifted up higher than anybody else. And so he's making this comment. It's just like, listen, there shouldn't be wrath and there shouldn't be doubting, is what the King James says. I think every other translation um, says dissension or dispute. And so, really, you could take it either way. The word can be, you know, definition one, doubting. Definition number two, uh, dissension or disputing. So context is going to determine it. <laughs> However, in this context, doubting, um, not doubting, fits with the context of prayer. We should be people of faith. Um, you know, dissension, it fits, especially because the word that precedes that is, is wrath. So um, however you want to take that, whether it's both items are included or just one, but the reality is this, is that when you come to prayer, you should not be filled with frustration and anger. Your life should not be marked by uh, uh, dissension in your relationships. Again, that illustration of a, a husband treating his wife well so that his prayers would not be hindered. Matthew 18, 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Now, did you catch that? If you have had somebody sin against you, you go. Now, we can look at another verse that would say, If you sinned against somebody, you go and make it right. Leave your gift at the altar. Go make it right with them. So what do we glean from this? Which is it? It's both. Whether you are the offender or the offendee, you should be going. So what would that look like if we walked this out practically? We would all be meeting each other on the road. <laughs> we all would be coming to each other. We wouldn't be sitting there waiting, well, I'm going to wait for them to come to me. You would be going because you've been sinned against, and the other person would be coming because they have sinned against you, and vice versa. So this is the word of the Lord. Luke 17, verses 3 and 4 says, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Forgive him. Let him go. Release him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day 
returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. This is the kind of unity that we want. So in other words, God does not want us coming in our vertical relationship to him in prayer when we have a disaster, a battlefield of broken relationships. He wants us to do all that we can to make those things right. Now, I know that for some of you, you have so thoroughly hurt and harmed other people that they are unwilling to forgive you. They're unwilling to give you another chance. That's between them and the Lord. And you're in a difficult place. Maybe you're wondering, well, what do I do? Well, you do everything you can do. And after you've done that, you just got to walk uprightly and uh, make certain if you ever have a chance to show to engage with that person again, that you are so thoroughly changed that those same errors would not be committed. You can do nothing more. But between you and the Lord, if you've repented, you're forgiven. And that is good news. So this is the first thing that's talked about, is the role of men is that they should be spiritually engaged, walking in holiness, engaged in spiritual activity in the church. In the church. We move on into verses 9 and 10. And um, if the first point in verse 8 is men should engage at church, our second point in verses 9 and 10 is that church is no place for carnality. Now, you could just as easily make this point to men, (laughs) um, but there was something specific to the church at Ephesus. And now Paul turns his attention to the sisters. He says, in like manner also the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. So let's talk about this. Does this mean then that a woman should never comb her hair, brush her teeth, or get out of her pajamas before coming to church? Some of you actually are just like that right now at church, but it's a different time. No, clearly it's not saying that. Clearly, it's not you know, prohibiting a woman from getting ready or getting, uh, taking care of herself, um, getting you know, uh, ready to go to church. There is nothing wrong with that. What is wrong is when we move from that place of a suitable uh, adornment and suitable uh, uh, fashion to the place where it becomes um, inappropriate. If you want to think about it like this, don't come in dressed like a pop star to church. That, that very distinct look that would be like, whoa, that is way over the top. So, I mean, I, I think we all are pretty familiar with that, what that kind of look looks. So where it'd be um, so ostentatious, maybe um, so immoder- um, immodest that it would cause people to not even want to look your way. And so there was something of this nature going on. I don't think pop stars is what's going on, but it's been suggested by many that um, the, what the dress is being described here is the way that some of the wealthiest of the Roman styles. And so I don't think we should get caught up in a particular, you know, well, I can't come to here, you know, church with braided hair, or I can't have any gold on, or I can't have any pearls. The idea is, in our culture, what is, what is immodest and what is ostentatious? What is just over the top? Look at me. And when you've entered into that place, Paul's saying that shouldn't be the case. But verse 10, what you, a woman should adorn herself with is good works. Good works. 
Your life should, just like men, should be engaged in spiritual life. A woman should be walking um, and just being kind and being gentle and being a servant and loving those in need and ministering and being a prayer warrior, being in those places of teaching. Um, and we'll talk more about that where it's appropriate, where it, there's opportunity. All of these things should just adorn your life. They should be what dresses you up. Um, so, you know, you don't need to look like the Spice Girls when you come to church, I guess is what he's saying. You know, just just come and don't draw attention to yourself and have your eyes on the Lord. First Peter 3, verses 3 through 4, a similar kind of statement is given by Peter. He says, don't let your dormant be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart and the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So don't be a distraction when you come to church. I mean, I think that's, that's the simple thing, is that you would not um, be trying to get people to look at, at you. The eyes should be upon the Lord, not upon a person. And, um, you know, we really don't have a problem. I've, I've not seen a problem with that. Um, so uh, just be mindful. I think the Spirit of God is instructing and He's teaching. And if you give enough time, um, the Holy Spirit will instruct those new believers on what they should be dressing like and what they shouldn't be dressing like. And there are times where then an older sister in the Lord may need to come along the side of a younger sister in the Lord and say, hey, you know what, I think it would be better if you dressed like and give some specific examples. I promise you I will never engage in that rebuke. I will always let the sisters handle that one on their own. Well, as we move into verses 11 and through 13, the attention is still on women, but we're going to talk about submission in the church now. He says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And so, um, yeah, this is where everybody sits up and says, Okay, what, are you, what in the world does this mean? Well, one of the ways I like to study the Word of God is to sometimes just flip it. What does this not mean? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It is not saying that the next time we gather together as a church that all of you women should say your last word in the car and not say another word until you get back into the car. It is not saying that. And any kind of um, attempt to make that the statement of what Paul's saying denies so much of the rest of the New Testament. And we'll take a look at it in, in just a moment. But let's talk about this. Let a woman learn in silence. Um, I, I think the idea here is that of um, uh, quietness, kind of what Paul talked about and Peter talked about in 1 Peter 3 through 4. It, it's a, a teachable attitude that's being referred to. Some have suggested, and we don't know, that um, the problem was there was some ladies in Ephesus that were disruptive, and their behavior was causing uh, chaos in the church service, and so Paul was addressing a specific issue. Well, that could be, but we just don't know that because the context, I mean, the, the, the text does not give us that context. But we do know that there should be 
a, um, a quietness seems to be the best way to understand this. And um, that this should be done with all submission, that she should be in that place of being yielded to those that are teaching. So rather than being um, upfront and um, disruptive or rather than being unwilling to be taught, um, Paul says you need to be in that place where you are um, being um, instructed. Now, I think if you, you, we think about what it says in verses 9 and 10, about that carnality issue, you know, you can begin to get a little feel, a little sense of the texture. Some women were coming in. They were dressed over the top, inappropriate. And then tell, Paul tells them to not do that, but to make certain that um, they have good works that are dressing them up. And then the next thing he talks about is how they need to be in submission. So it very well um, could be that they were as a disruptive element um, there at the church, both in dress and in conversation, and Paul wants to deal with that. I'll tell you what else this is not teaching. It's not saying that women can, women can never speak. It also is not saying that men are smarter than women. It, it doesn't say that. Well, the reason why men need to be the ones to... Uh, Speak is because they're smarter. No, the Bible doesn't say that. Um, some have really tried to make an education argument from this and saying, well, the reason why Paul said this is because women were not educated. Therefore, they really didn't know the scriptures. Um, and so therefore, and they go on. But the New Testament would teach us otherwise. And we'll come to her in just a moment. But uh, Priscilla and Aquila, that you know, dynamic dual married couple, um, she, Priscilla, she was quite capable of giving instruction, as were others. So I think that kind of argument is just not right, and we're going to see this. Um, even in the verse 11, it says, let a woman learn. And I think that is an important thing for us to, to keep in mind, is that there is an instruction. So it's not that women um, were uneducated, and therefore they need to be quiet, because anything they would have to say is just going to be annoying, and it's going to be wrong. That's not what is being said here. But I do think it's really important to note that in the culture and in the Jewish culture, I didn't say scriptures, but in the Jewish culture of this time, that very much was the idea is that a woman should be quiet and not speak at all. Um, in the Talmud, it says the men came to learn and the women came to hear. So the, in, that, in the cultural Judaism, um, and religious Judaism, there was a thought that men could learn, but women could only hear. The fact that Paul says that a woman should learn is a, a statement that would have infuriated many in that first century. It's kind of the same idea that we talked about earlier with uh, Paul and how he dealt with um, um, slaves and that he would give instructions to slaves. This would have infuriated many people because a slave was a piece of property. It's my property. Nobody's going to talk about morals or spirituality or growth or conduct because it's a, this is my slave and they are, shouldn't be received that. But Paul ran right over that cultural norm and he gave instruction and he also runs over this um, cultural uh, attitude that said a woman cannot learn. 
Another person says Judaism would enforce physical silence on women without concern for their growth in knowledge. At this point, Paul was not borrowing from his Jewish heritage, but was reflecting as a Christian a greater appreciation for the role of women in the spreading the gospel. So we sit here in 2020 and we, we look at this and we bring all of our own ideas and our own understandings of our culture and our day and the worldview and we read them into the scripture and we don't understand. But in his day, he was swimming upstream when he said, let a woman learn. I mean, many people would have tuned out right there and said, forget it. You have, I have, you have nothing more to say that I need to listen to. So this accusation that Paul was a, uh, a chauvinistic um, Pharisee that never really made changes on this level it is an admission of a lack of understanding of what was normal in the first century synagogue and among the Jew, Jews' mindset. So it was that they, the woman would only hear and not learn. So, not held in high esteem, but, but Paul certainly did. As the gospel came onto the scene, it esteemed women and gave them a much-needed elevation in their treatment. Um, the first person Jesus revealed his messiahship to uh, was a woman. Jesus healed a woman. Um, he taught women in contrast to the rabbis. Um, women ministered to Jesus and to his disciples. They were part of that group that followed him. Jesus revealed himself to a, after his resurrection to a woman first. Um, and again, a woman's testimony in that day was not considered um, acceptable. So the most important fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was first entrusted to women. Women and men were involved in prayer services of the early church. You can read in Acts chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. Um, so many places we see this. Probably one of the uh, most noted scripture verses when we talk about this subject comes from Galatians 3.28. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male or female, but Christ is all in all. So what does that mean? How we come to Christ is a level playing field. The, the, uh, the free man does not have a leg up over the person that was a slave. The Jew does not have a leg up over the, the person who was a Greek. The, the man does not have an advantage over the woman. Everybody gets to come to the Lord the same way, and everybody comes to the Lord the same way. Now, that is not to say that there are not distinctions of stations and genders. There are that. But how a person comes and the standing that a man or a woman, a free or slave or a Jew or a Greek has, it's all equal. So there's not an inferior class. And stating that there is not an inferior class or an inferior um, uh, race or there's an inferior uh, gender he is not saying there are no distinctions, which is a mistake that people often make. So women under the gospel were elevated to a rightful place of esteem that they had been denied for far too long. When the gospel was going forth, it was turning the cultural tables of the day. 
to say that Paul was just you know, echoing the party line and that Jesus was echoing the party line is a failure to understand what was going on in the first century world. So I think that's very important for us to know. And wherever the gospel has gone down through the last 2,000 years of the church's history, the station and the elevation and the esteem of women has always gone up. Look at the places where the gospel has had no effect or has been long since it's had a profound impact upon um, a, a society. And you will see that women are not esteemed there. So looking still now at verse 12, uh, 1 Timothy 2.12, um, we read, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Again, very controversial verse. I don't have time to go all, through all of this. But the role of women in the church is such that she is not to exercise authority over a man. Implied in this is that she would not have the position of a, um, a, a bishop or an overseer. And that's very clear in this, this book. I mean, when Paul um, talks about um, bishops and overseers, it is always referring to men. So um, why is that? Because, well, we'll see in just a moment. Because essentially, this is the way God has set it up. There's an order. Just like in the home, there is an order. That God has put the, the man as the leader, and that the woman is to follow in submission to him. Does that mean that he is to dominate her and overcome her? doesn't mean that at all. Um, so within the church, she, a woman, is not to have authority. This is a much disputed word, the word authority. And some have um, sought to say that this word was actually one of um, domineering that you should understand it, that a woman should not domineer over a man in the church. So in other words, the, the idea is that the, the Ephesian ladies were aggressive and they were um, taking things uh, and leadership in an inappropriate way. Well, if that was the case, that certainly would be wrong. But the reason for that interpretation then goes, therefore, the door for appropriate authority among a woman in leadership of the church is okay. Because she, hand, she took it in the wrong way, um, that needed to be corrected. It did not mean, they, some would argue, therefore, that there is not a place for her to handle authority in a right way. But that does not seem to be what this word is saying at all. It doesn't mean to be the idea of domineering. It simply means um, those who have studied this word the most have said it means to exercise authority. It's the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. But there's a lack of evidence in the text here that women were being domineering over men. It simply is a statement that Paul is saying is that men are the leaders in the church. And there is no greater way in which the, a, a bishop or an elder can lead than to speak the authoritative word of God. And so it's in this that there is that limitation. One author says, women are not to be in positions of authority in the church. It refers to having a, a leadership function in the church, and it carries no negative connotation that to usurp authority or to domineer would suggest. Um, so this is not the idea there, but just that the idea she's not to have that position 
of authority. So some will say, well, isn't this chauvinistic? No, <laughs> because if it's, if it's chauvinistic to say that um, a woman should not have authority um, and, and be in submission, then, then what does that mean in the house? Is that also chauvinistic? Now, that's what feminists would say, but that's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God has a plan, and God's Word has an order. But to think that women have no place to teach in the church is also a mistake. Women are exhorted to teach um, other women, um, to teach their children. We see women prophesying. Um, in the general gathering of the church. So in that context of prophesying or encouraging or exhorting, a woman has that opportunity in a, um, um, a, a less formal position to contribute to the encouragement and edification um, of the body of Christ. Again, Priscilla um, was one that instructed Apollos along with their husband in that um, less formal setting. But in the most and, the, and the, uh, the teaching that's associated with the leadership of the church, a woman is limited. She is to be in submission. Well, to be in submission means she's an inferior. Okay, well, hang on with that. Because we read in the New Testament that Jesus was in submission to the Father. If Jesus was in submission to the Father, does that make him inferior to the Father? If you say yes, you have a problem because you have just denied the deity of Jesus Christ. So to say that submission means inferiority is to not understand how the Bible uses the word submission. Have some taken that to mean that? Yes, they have, and they've abused it. But that is not what we read here in the Word of God. I would hate to be a part of a church where women do not have a prominent um, place of ministry. And that's what we have at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. We have you know, women teaching women. Um, we have women teaching children. We have women involved in the youth ministry. We have women that help out on the worship team. We have women that serve, um, you know, taking care of uh, the, the finances. There's women that are involved in um, all aspects of the church except for the leadership of the church, meaning that place of the offices of the church and, and teaching um, in this kind of a setting where it is meant to be an authoritative statement from the Word of God. Those less formal settings are clearly allowed in Scripture. So, some would say, well, I just don't think this is right. Well, we do understand that most men will never take that position too. Only a handful of people will be gifted in that way. So this isn't just a statement against women. A man who's not called or gifted should not take that position either. So um, this is, um, I think, it really has less impact than people would like to make it out. But this is what the word of the Lord says. Well, don't you think, though, that this was a cultural thing? Um, I don't. And in verses 13 and 14, we're given two biblical reasons for why a woman should be in submission. It says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So, number one, the order of creation puts Adam first. That is not a cultural thing. That is a doctrinal statement. And Paul appeals to the word of God, not to culture. And then he also Paul, uh, appeals to the deception. And so what does that mean? That all women are gullible? He didn't say that. And I'm certainly not saying that. But what it does mean 
is that when a woman led in that first um, you know, occasion with sin, it did not turn out well. And so part of the consequences are, 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 number one, the order of creation, but also that a man should lead. Now listen, Adam's sin in, um, was greater than Eve's because Adam was deceived, the woman was deceived by the serpent, but Adam had his eyes wide open and went into the sin. So his sin is more egregious. So um, I want to be, be very careful here. But you know, the thing that's so interesting is this has not been a question um, for, you know, 1,950 years approximately in the church. It's in the last 50 years that this has become such a big issue. Um, uh, Bob Yarborough, professor of, the New Te- of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, he did a survey of Christian writings on the subject of women's roles in the church, and he came to the conclusion that it wasn't until after 1969, during the women's lib movement, that articles began to appear that questioned um, what had been the teaching of the church for 1,900 years. The church should not be shaped by culture. The church should be shaped by the Word of God. Is this, even with the explanation I give, does this still like, something that kind of we find a little bit difficult, hard, uh, difficult and hard to hear? Yeah, I, I imagine that some do. I get that. I, I can understand that. But you know what? My emotions and your emotions don't get to dictate what the Word of God says. Our culture doesn't get to do that. So this is what the Word of God says on this subject. I think it's just so important, though, that in understanding what it Paul does say is to know what he is not saying, and it's not to say that women are insignificant and they don't have a place of ministry. Paul leaned upon women in ministry to accomplish many of the tasks, and the church um, benefited and has always benefited down through the centuries um, because of the involvement of women. If women ever stop using their spiritual gifts and being involved in church, watch out. It will not be a pretty sight. And so we close here um, with the, another difficult verse in verse 15. And I'm just going to give this the title of not lacking in significance. And nevertheless, she, the woman, will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Again, what is this not saying? It is not saying that a woman finds eternal salvation by giving birth to children. Because there are many Christian women that have not had um, have not been able to have children, so it's clearly not saying that. And if that was the case, then it would mean that Jesus did not need to die upon the cross; that their salvation can come through works. So it doesn't mean that. So what are the possibilities? I'll give you three. One, a general physical protection um, that says that God's going to really watch over women in childbirth. That seems to be problematic because many Christian women have died in childbirth. Um, Some would say this is a reference to Genesis 3.15 where God promised that salvation would come through the seed of the woman and that a woman has a significant role in, in the world. She may not lead the church, but her role of being the gender that would see the Messiah come through is quite significant. Well, I think that's getting closer to home. To me, that's a, a good possibility, but I think it's still too limited to uh, one woman. I think in a very difficult passage, 
the best idea is that she's going to be preserved from insignificance. He has just limited the role of a woman in the church. But it's like he's saying, however, do remember this. You have this unique role that men don't get to touch. And I don't think there are too many men that want to touch it. And that's giving birth to a child. You have a unique role and a unique place that is special and is beautiful and is wonderful. And men don't have that. And just like you have that, there's a a specific leadership role that comes from the order of creation. I don't know that that solves all of our questions, but that to me seems to make the most sense. But it's not just childbearing and you're good to go. No, they also need to continue in faith, in love, in holiness, and self-control. So it's not just, we'll have a baby and everything's good. No, you got to continue to grow and develop your own uh, character. So really, one of the toughest verses to teach, and I'm doing it in this format, but um, I didn't want this to be our first Bible study when we come back together either. So let's just kind of summarize this. Men need to step up um, to the altar of prayer and fulfill that mandate to pray everywhere. They need to be spiritually engaged. Women need to make sure they're not allowing the dictates of our culture and fashion um, that are inappropriate and immodest to be the example. Let your godly works be the thing that makes you stand out. Uh, Number three, don't disrupt the order that God has established within families, but also within the church, is that men should lead. And then lastly, um, don't allow the one limitation that is placed upon a woman in ministry in the church, and that's the holding in office, um, to make you feel like there's no place for you to serve then. There is open doors on every other level to engage in ministry. And we see that. We have missionaries. We have so many women that are serving. And the church has experienced this down through the ages as is right and as is appropriate. So again, we don't let culture lead us and guide us. We allow the Word of God to be the final statement. And there are questions about um, gender and sexuality in, in our day like never before, but it's really not a confusing thing. If we're willing to come to the Word of God, read it and study it and let it speak with authority, it's very simple what is being instructed and what is being taught. So as we close, I just uh, I really want to kind of challenge the men that are listening is that you would step up and engage in spiritual activity and for you women to know that you have a place that's been elevated through the gospel, through your Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would be a person that has learned and is able to um, engage in every type of ministry except for one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that instructs us and teaches us. We thank you, Lord, for the order that you give both in in creation, in marriage, and, Lord, in our own um, local congregations, the church. We pray, Lord, that you would just continue to... um, Allow the church to flourish and to grow. And I pray for the men, Lord, of our church, that they would step forward and no longer be on the sidelines, but would engage fully in the spiritual life of, and of the church to help with the growth and development of um, younger people in the faith. Lord, we need you to be magnified. We need you to be glorified in all things. 
And Lord, I just pray that we would see all men and women flourish in their growth of their spiritual gifts. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.